What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan and I'm back yet again with another brand new instalment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Thanks for tuning in guys. You know the drill by now. As ever, if you missed last week's show, you could still go catch it on demand over at Blog Talk Radio, over at lordsofpain.net. Download that baby, get it listened to. Same with all the other great podcasts here on Lords of Pain Radio. We've shows going out to practically every single day of the week, covering every aspect of the professional wrestling industry. Your one-stop shop for the best fan-driven podcasts about wrestling on the internet. So do don't miss out. Go check all those great shows out right now. Well, maybe not right now. Maybe after you've listened to this one. If you tuned in. Last week, you may have heard me say that I was perhaps toying with another real-time watch-along. I've actually had a last-minute change of heart this week. A last-minute... I guess I called an audible, you could say, right? Basically, I'm recording this on Tuesday night. And when I woke up this morning, obviously on, on British time, and saw the results of Monday Night Raw... Uh, my heart kind of sank because it it read, and granted I've not actually physically sat and watched much of it quite yet, but it read on paper in the YouTube clips that I saw, watched like we were sinking right back into square one. Where we were in December, there seemed to be a lot of Baron Corbin. There seemed to be a lot of, of, of nonsense, particularly you know Stephanie McMahon popping up and another awkward moment of bliss segment. Ambrose doing goofy stuff again. It felt like we were we were regressing we had angle and Jarrett of all people wrestling matches on raw i mean it was it just read awfully and as my right side of the pond colleague maverick tweeted out uh, you know it's it's enough certainly to raise concerns so this kind of got me thinking and and you know i decided that if there was a time for me to call audible it would be this week because Staring WWE in the face are some really interesting character arcs that I feel almost write themselves. Not maybe to the degree where you would know exactly what you would do with them on on TV every week or in the two pay-per-views they've got to get through in February. And indeed, I'm going to try and avoid any fantasy booking on this show. But just in in very general, kind of thematic terms, kind of in terms of of overarching uh, character development, I think that there are some very compelling ones that are staring WWE in the face, and as per usual, I fear that they might not be able to see them, that they've got their sort of their basket of, you know, ready-made, processed storylines that they pick and choose from, uh, but that resemble more caricatures of stories rather than narratives. Excuse me. So what I thought I'd do is I'd sit down and I'd take six or seven characters on uh, television. If we've got time, I want to uh, talk about one division as well. But six or seven characters on Raw and SmackDown uh, that I think have very, very compelling WrestleMania, road to WrestleMania story arcs in front of them if WWE choose to capture it. And obviously these aren't the only options, but these are the ones that jump out to me. And I thought I'd share what I feel those are with you guys because... It's going to be frustrating for me sitting back and watching WWE dwindle back into their usual cliches and, and kind of unoriginal thought patterns when they have these 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 great arcs in front of them. The other thing that I want to do this for is to prove that, you know, obviously this is sports entertainment is dead and you know that I'm as a, a proponent of watching professional wrestling as a performance art, that I'm very heavily into character development and, and character subtext and taking what's happened on TV, whether it be purposeful or accidental, taking moments in matches, whether they be purposeful or accidental and leaning into them and, and saying that helps flesh out what we understand of these characters. It's about understanding, I guess, more of the the why, asking why they did things than trying to figure out out what WWE are trying to achieve by booking stuff. So like I say, we've got six or seven of these to whiz through. I'm going to, as always, try and keep it to an hour. So that only that only gives me what, about 10 minutes on each one or so, maybe a little bit a little bit less here. And come on, it's me. It's Sports Entertainment is Dead. It's Samuel Plan. You know very well where I'm starting. It's my boy, Seth Rollins, winner of the 2018 Men's Royal Rumble. And I, you know, I think 
certainly, to my mind, I think by far the, the most obvious and, and best qualified candidate to be occupying a spot that I guess otherwise would have probably have gone to Roman Reigns. Though it's very interesting, actually, I was thinking this the other day, wondering what WrestleMania might look like if Roman Reigns had been healthy uh, and how the pieces may have fallen then. But nonetheless, Seth, we know, is heading to WrestleMania. We saw him a couple of weeks ago on Monday Night Raw, cut a very kind of heartfelt, genuine, emotional promo in the ring about how it's all he's ever wanted to do, and now he's getting to do it. And then Triple H came out, and they had a bit of interaction there. And then Dean Ambrose came out, and they had a bit of interaction there. Then they had a match. It was all, I thought, all very compelling television. Of course, Seth gets, what was it, six F5s at the end of the night for his struggle, including one on a championship, and was still clambering to his feet afterwards, which in itself by the way, is a tantalising start to this journey because it took six F5s for Brock Lesnar to pin Roman Reigns last year at WrestleMania. So if Seth is somewhat surviving six F5s already uh, without the kind of Brock Lesnar experience under his belt that Roman Reigns had heading into to WrestleMania, what was it, 34 last year, uh, then then that's that's a threat to Lesnar and he should be, be very wary of that. But in terms of the character arc here, I, I guess I have a little consternation, a little anxiety that maybe they're, they're heading towards some kind of boyhood dream 2.0 scenario, given the, the sort of the tone of the promo on, on Monday Night Raw. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's where they're going to go for definite, of course, and it's it's uh, this is a fear more than it is a theory. Um, but, you know, it was very telling to me that they kind of went for that heartfelt, raw, no pun intended, a promo. Triple H came out and talked about how he knew it was all Seth had ever wanted. And, you know, ever since he dreamed as a boy and stuff, the, the vernacular, the, the lexicon he was using and, and this, the, the tone of it all... I think it would be a mistake for them to pursue that avenue, quite honestly. Because, first of all, it automatically invites disfavorable comparison to 1996, and Shawn Michaels is the kind of performer who, no matter what you may think of him, sits on a on a pedestal in the minds of many fans, and so immediately you're going to be categorized as not Shawn Michaels rather than you are anything else. But more importantly, we're at a stage in WWE's life cycle where we need new ideas, not to be revisiting old ideas. And there's, uh, indeed, the, the next person... I'm going to talk about that's that's just as prominent uh, uh, an issue for them heading into WrestleMania season as well, heading deeper into WrestleMania season as well. So what I, instead, what I think they ought to do is recognize what's happening here, recognize the accident of this situation. I've spoken on this show on the right side of the pond and, and written in columns about what I like to call the circumstances of fate, the coincidences of fate, which is when these events just seem to suddenly start happening around people and it's not because they've been designed or necessarily intended, they're just happening one after the other that amount to a catalyst for change. Uh, and it's often when those things happen that you see WWE shift from one era to another throughout their throughout their history and on a more macro level uh, you know that can be very much applied to Seth Rollins Wrestlemania story arc this year Um, because what you have is the coincidences of fate just think about what happened two weeks ago on Monday Night Raw like I said he's out there he's cutting a promo it's all he's ever wanted to do is is headline Wrestlemania now he's going to be able to live that dream he's going to be challenging Brock Lesnar for the world championship who of course he stole a world championship from at Wrestlemania in the distant past and Triple H was out there and you had a, a sense of that father-son relationship being revisited, that mentor-student relationship being revisited with a with a, a somewhat healthier vein to it than we'd seen in the past, but you had that's certainly been a big part of Seth's history as a character, and you had that there. Then you had Ambrose in the ring, who was very much heavily playing on the themes of their previous rivalry uh, in 2014-2015, and revisiting that sense of jealousy, that vein of jealousy running through him about how Seth chose the authority over the shield at, at one stage. And Triple H back, fighting back, talking about more recent developments of Ambrose stabbing Rollins in the back on the night that Roman announced his battle with leukemia. And on top of all of that now, we of course see news circulating that Rollins is dealing with a bad back and that's why he wasn't on Raw this week. That's why he hasn't been working live events and that's why if he does appear on Raw and I bloody hope he does because I thought you really suffered for his his absence this week. But if he if he does appear on Raw, it's largely going to be you know sort of vocal promos and and that kind of thing. So you're even there revisiting 
you know, the fact that he missed WrestleMania 32 with an injury and the fact that he almost missed WrestleMania 33 with an injury as well. So you have the Ambrose relationship, the Triple H relationship, the history with Brock, specifically at WrestleMania, the history with injuries, specifically at WrestleMania. You have all of the specters of Rollins' past, all the ghosts of this journey that he's been on for all these years, kind of all starting to circulate around him. I mean, it's practically Shakespearean that he has these ghosts of his life soliloqu well not soliloquizing to him because they're not on their own, but 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 delivering these monologuing at him and delivering these speeches at him. You know, it's 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 Richard the Third, it's Hamlet and his father, it's Richard the Third and his victims. Lean into that. Make this what it should always have been about, which is the culmination of his journey of redesigning, rebuilding, and reclaiming his soul that was stripped from him through his tormenting experiences as a subject of the authority. And I use the word subject very deliberately there. Eventuating in him achieving his greatest accolade yet, which is, of course, to topple the beast Brock Lesnar and arise uh, as universal champion ready for the next stage of his story. It feels like you're at the, the, the final act of a character arc that's been evolving since 2014. WWE would be foolish not to capitalize on that and, indeed, not to see what they've got in front of them. Like I say... Play on the fact that you have all of the specters, all of the ghosts of Rollins' journey floating around him and culminate it in a wonderfully emotive moment at WrestleMania when he picks up a win and picks up the Universal Championship, which would be good for the product as well as good for his character. And it would, it would, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm settling myself in to get quite annoyed at how they're almost inevitably not going to do that because it's far more in my opinion you know not to toot my own horn but to me that's far more interesting far more vibrant than you know WWE going it's his boyhood dream or WWE having him come out for for six weeks in a row saying I'm a fighting champion and I'm gonna beat the part-timers and it's time to move on which are all prescient themes right now you know and, and I would enjoy them because it's Rollins journey and I'm gonna enjoy this journey no matter what happens uh, I know that for a fact because I'm I mean I'm so heavily invested in this guys after he won the Royal Rumble I just as I told my my mate Ash who's been on the show before I would I went out and got his logo tattooed on my wrist with the year 2019 on the underside of it. That's how invested in this I already am. It's very, very... And I might even do a show on this before WrestleMania uh, itself because, you know, I could dedicate an hour of my time comfortably and happily talking about what this journey has meant to me and, and how deeply rooted. So how deeply rooted in it I am so you know no matter what happens no matter how they play this angle I'm going to love it but I think the best thing to do is to, to embrace the fiction as I'm always saying on Sports Entertainment is Dead recognise the best way to do this is focus on Rollins character development focus on his journey utilize and employ the ghosts and specters of his past that are all sort of orbiting around him uh, and, and actively consciously recognize those on television through commentary and whatnot and allow WrestleMania to be a career-defining moment for him and, and, a, and a, a genuinely powerful conclusion to a story arc so that you could take his journey from 2012 all the way through to 2019 and almost watch it as a single story and then, you know, the sequel starts thereafter. But of course... Seth Rollins isn't the only person who is heading to a major championship match at WrestleMania. The other person, and, and indeed at this point, the, the person likely to beat him out to the final match at WrestleMania is, of course, the so-called man, Becky Lynch. Now, in truth, I'm not quite sure what the arc is in front of her because everything's feeling a little confused to me at the minute with this. And it might be because I'm not quite as on board with the Becky Lynch hype that a lot of people are. And, you know, I don't want to... It's awesome that people are getting excited, this excited about Becky Lynch. I mean, the Austin comparisons remain a little much for me. And, you know, I I, I, I still have a, a cynical doubt that this is really not based on, on anything real in the first place. But it's cool that people are excited. I Certainly, you know, I, as, as invested as I am in, in Rollins and his story and how much I would hate it if someone came along to try and pour damp water over that, I'm not going to do that for people. You know, it's awesome. And, and listen, you know, the reaction that Becky and Ronda got two weeks on Raw speaks for itself. I know that's kind of already a cliche point to make, but it's true. It absolutely speaks for itself. I'm just not sure what the story arc is because they've now started to employ this story about her having a, a, a knee injury, but she's not going to take time off to get it healed up because she's so, you know, she's so avid about wanting to, to fight Ronda, which in itself suggests plot holes because it's like, well, 
you know, we've still got, what, six or seven weeks till WrestleMania, yeah? That's plenty of time for it to... What's she doing in the meantime, other than, than cutting promos, in which case she could be healing up anyway? The whole thing kind of just feels a bit loose and a bit a bit wafer thin. Uh, and I think, honestly, Becky has earned something better than that. Uh, and so... I think what WWE needs to do here is not go for the underdog story that they find so so enticing all the time. It's like they can't envision a hero who isn't an underdog unless they're six foot eight, five hundred pounds of muscle and and you know all the rest of it. Don't either go for the anti-establishmentarian uh, vibe. My fear about the whole Stephanie McMahon thing wasn't that Stephanie McMahon was back on TV or getting involved in an angle. It's because I just have fears, and we've seen them try to revisit the Austin Vince thing in the past. I mean, remember that that sort of really extreme featherweight version they did with CM Punk and John Laurinaitis, and that never worked. And I'm sure there are other examples as well that have never really worked. There was a vibe with with Cena and Heyman in the in the early 2000s at one point that never really clicked, and it's because you know you can't recapture that that was lightning in a bottle it was a cultural zeitgeist particularly a pro wrestling zeitgeist and you know we need new ideas i don't want to see austin vince 2.0 any more than i want to see boyhood dream 2.0 so avoid the anti-establishmentarian thing and and understand that the reason people started to like becky was because she's an ass kicker that's what the man is all about she's come to chew gum and take names as they say and she's fresh out of gum so play with that you know go with that don't shy away from it i mean these are all you know these are age old wwe habits aren't they i'm not saying anything new here but they need to make sure she remains uh, an ass kicker and not not try and get get sort of swallowed up with the idea of trying to prove her an underdog or an anti-establishmentarian because first of all we've already done that with Ronda and Steph you know so so you know we don't need Becky Lynch coming off like she's trying to copy Ronda Rousey so that Ronda Rousey has material for a promos for example also um you know on the underdog front Ronda is already getting a quite severe fan reaction in terms of people booing her out the building and you know, trying to build Becky as an underdog against Ronda Rousey wouldn't serve. Becky's got infinitely more experience in a wrestling ring than Ronda Rousey, who's had a number of good matches, but whose relative inexperience continues to show in her performances. Uh, you know, this is very much meant to be Becky's environment, and it should be Becky's environment. And as galling as it would be for Ronda to be presented as an underdog, Becky would be even more galling to be presented as an underdog. So ultimately what they've got to do, and I keep using the phrase, is lean into the hostility being shown towards Ronda Rousey, who is this unapologetic ass-kicker and should be doing the kind of thing I think that the TJP, I remember when he... Uh, tweeted out about the final of the Cruiserweight Classic, that he was happy to have taken away the match everyone dreamed about to give them something better. That's the kind of attitude I think Ronda ought to be ought to be having. And, uh, you know, I think from sort of uh, Becky's uh, perspective, uh, they need to understand the company, that is, need to understand that the outsider, who is very much Ronda here, is always going to be the first person to be rejected by wrestling fans, right? So what you what you want to do is... is, is Basically, just make this a, 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 a brawl. I almost said fight there, but that has ugly UFC connotations, so I'm going to avoid using that term. But, uh, you know, they need to just make it two ass-kickers. Two ass-kickers, two, two guys, two gals who, uh, you know, just want to go out there and beat people up, and they get in the ring together, and they find out who's the best. This is the kind of that. I mean, that right there, in fact, that's the vein. I've kind of got a, a, um, a stream of consciousness going here, guys, so keep up with me. Um, but... That's the vein. It's what they ought to do here is just make this a more rugged version of what they initially looked like they were going to make CM Punk versus Chris Jericho at WrestleMania 2018. You know, uh, 20, uh, 28. I beg your pardon. I'm getting all excited. Um, and you know where where Jericho came out and, and Punk came out and Punk said, "Best in the world, the best in the world." WrestleMania, let's do it. You know, no special entrances or anything like that. Let's see who is genuinely the best in the world. Well, let's see who's genuinely the man between these two women. You know, let's see genuinely who's the best ass kicker. Don't make this about anything other than the clash of egos that we've got. The two of them getting in one another's faces. Becky Lynch getting in Ronda's face. Again, I'm a little confused as to what exactly the character arc here is. I'm not sure how Becky Lynch grows through this, and I'd be as a character grows through this, and I'd be I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on 
on that and you can you know you can let them be known in the means I'll plug at the end of the podcast as always um, because I'm not quite sure what it is I don't think it's an underdog story I don't think it's an anti-establishmentarian story I think this is the story of someone who because the other thing is you know who do you pick to win here a lot of people are going to automatically pick Becky Lynch but if Ronda's sticking around I mean you know how 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 all in pause for dramatic effect, do you uh, go with with this? It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't have quite the clearer idea with, with Becky Lynch as I do with someone like Seth Rollins as to what the arc is there, though. Um, so I guess we'll have to sort of, you know, we'll have to sort and wait and see. I, I don't want to see, I tell you what I don't want to see, I don't want to see them go too far with the whole you know, you've not been in the business very long thing because that's something else that we've seen done before. Um, that, you know, there'd be shades of Big Show and Floyd Mayweather there, which, I you know, don't seem to fit quite. Um, and, you know, we again, like I said, we've seen it done before. And I think there's there's a more interesting narrative to be tapped into between Becky and Ronda. Um, I guess, ultimately, they, they need to play on the fact that these two came that close to wrestling each other at, at, at Survivor Series, and then uh, it didn't happen. And I think the two of them should be should be telling each other. It feels to me like the two of them should be telling each other, "Look, it's it's good for you that that didn't happen. No, no, it's good for you that that didn't happen." Uh, and and just let them bloody fight. Just let them. You know, you, they WWE love that that segment on TV where they have two people brawl and it gets out of control. This is one time where I wouldn't mind seeing that. But um, at the minute, I feel like it's a it's a little surface level uh, and like I say I'm not sure what Becky's journey is from A to B how she grows so I'd love to hear your guys thoughts on that it feels almost like this is more Ronda's character arc than it is uh, Becky's character arc and maybe Ronda finally discovering maybe this is it actually like I say I've got stream of consciousness going on here but maybe this is Ronda, Ronda Rouse's story not Becky Lynch's story and I know that's going to be controversial to say but the reason I say that is because it strikes me talking about this feud this angle this storyline just out loud and, and venting my thoughts here. It seems to me like that out of the two characters involved, Ronda Rousey is the one who has more room to grow. It feels like Becky Lynch is already the fully formed character and her arc of growth came with Charlotte uh, in, in last year. Indeed, I, I, I would add as well, you know, a lot of people talking about how uh, they shouldn't add Charlotte into this match. I disagree. They should absolutely add Charlotte into this match, take Ronda out of it, because, you know, as as great as Ronda has been this year, I'm not sure she's been WrestleMania main event for the, it, on her second WrestleMania, great. I don't think she's been take the, the opportunity earned by others, great. Uh, and I think, the you know, if this was about the, the women's feud, the women's characters that had earned that show-closing match spot, Really, we should be talking about Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair again. But, by the by, I'm here to talk about the characters. And like I say, I think Ronda's got the greater scope to grow because Ronda's the one who needs to learn a little humility. She ran through Alexa Bliss. She ran through Nia Jax. She ran through Sasha Banks. She ran through Charlotte. She ran through Bailey. You know, she's the one who's got something to learn. She's the one who needs to be humbled, brought down a peg so that she can begin to grow again as a character. So I think maybe this is actually Ronda Rouse's story and maybe Becky Lynch is the antagonist in it. As much as we cheer the antagonist in this particular story, you know, it, it comes down to ideas about point of view, point of view wrestling uh, that I've had brewing for some time now, which maybe I'll dive into in one show. But maybe this is Ronda's story more than it is Becky's, even though I imagine Becky should be. It feels like the, the story demands Becky be the one who wins somehow. And maybe that's because it's two ass kickers. Becky comes in as the challenger, you know, so I don't know. It's an interesting one to to think about. It's an interesting one to weigh up, and probably out of all of the the arcs that I'm discussing today, the one that's still got um, that still got the most shape left to form, as inelegant a phrase as that is, uh, in terms of you know, it's it's the least well defined at this stage, and the least obvious. Um, but I think another, you know, let's move swiftly on here to number three. And uh, Finn Balor is someone that I wanted to talk about. I think he should have a very, very strong road to WrestleMania ahead of him at this stage because of the month of January that he had. Now, I will say that on last Sunday, I posted the first monthly retrospectives that I'll now be doing this year where I named my matches of the month, my wrestler of the month, and, and discussed some of the more major talking points of the month in the news. And Finn Balor was my pick for wrestler of January. So if you haven't read that column, go check it out. Just Business, the WWE January Retrospective 2019, still available on lordspain.net. 
And the reason being that he was on NXT TakeOver UK, Blackpool, where he wrestled Jordan Devlin in a great mentor-student mid-card match on the network. Fantastic little match. He had a great match with Brock Lesnar at Royal Rumble. But we're here to talk about character arcs, and I think what got set up beautifully with the Brock Lesnar story, I know everyone's kind of cringed uh, when they did the whole David versus Goliath thing, you know, and mainly because the, the way that the promos had been mapped out weren't great, and it was all a bit weird and cheesy and kind of suffering succotash Vince McMahon. His fingerprints seemed to be all over it, and so it didn't really work out. And I know a lot of people kind of saying, you know, that's... You know, that's not how we want to see Finn Balor presented. But I think it nonetheless opens the gate for uh, a a rather, what I would consider to be fascinating uh, sort of um, journey for Finn Balor to take over the next couple of months, uh, which is this th- to keep playing on the theme of, of believing, you know, of making believers out of people. Um, because ultimately, when you think about the story and how that all panned out, one thing that we haven't been talking about is that, you know, Finn Balor lost the match. He he was talking about how he's going to make people believe he's going to. And after, you know, a couple of weeks on Rory said he made Brock Lesnar believe. And that's why Brock Lesnar attacked him after the fact. And maybe, you know, I mean, I do quite like that, that notion. Um, but ultimately, he didn't win the match. Right. So it feels like that arc that started with I'm going to make people believe it hasn't wrapped up yet and it needs a big victory because victories in wrestling are how you how you bring an end to your story ultimately I believe it, it much it sort of a, a, I, fittingly a, a minor version of Seth's story it feels like it needs a, a big victory at Wrestlemania in, in order to uh, affirm that you know this story is now complete and Finn Balor has succeeded in his mission it's not enough to just lose a match have someone beat him up because they're frightened because it made him believe Finn Balor needs to prove he's a man of his word that's the key thing right you know you make a promise you've got to you got to follow through otherwise your words are empty so it's about it's about doing something that will allow Balor to to make people believe and I actually think as as much as people might grow and I think Bobby Lashley in the Intercontinental Championship is the absolute perfect follow-up to last through to WrestleMania and I hope it does last through to WrestleMania I don't think it will because we've still got a very long time to go and they might WWE might rush things forward to to Elimination Chamber and fast or Fastlane I think that would be a mistake because you know the victory over Bobby Lashley for the Intercontinental Championship I think should be the end point to this character arc which you know the reason why Bobby Lashley is perfect is because of the obvious similarities that are being consciously drawn by fans, but more particularly by WWE on Raw, between Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar. Bobby, uh, sorry, Balor loses the match uh, to Brock, despite having said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you a believer. Have Lashley in his mouthpiece, Leo Rush, play on the fact that Finn Balor failed. You know, he's, he's, he has. He has made these big promises. He's going to be the David that kills the Goliath. Well, Goliath just devoured David like a chicken leg. And now David has to prove that he's a man of his word, that he really can do what he said he's going to do, that he's not just the boy who cried wolf. Um, And by beating Lashley, it's kind of the second tier version. You know, it's still an impressive feat in and of itself, but it maintains the integrity of the creative that he couldn't quite get it done against Lesnar at Royal Rumble. So you can have a nicely competitive match WrestleMania. You can you can have him do the chase to WrestleMania. You know whether you can usually a rush as a as an antagonist in all of that. I mean they sort of already have annoyingly, but this is WWE all over. You know they they they're just thinking week by week. They're not thinking about the arc in front of them. That's why I wanted to do this show. Um, but yeah, you can you could totally do all of that. And then if if one day Balor manages to beat Bobby Lashley at WrestleMania and becomes the Intercontinental Champion, guess what? That's the signifier then that everything he promised that he would do with Brock, he's actually been able to live up to. And that's when you get the sense that, you know, you can play the story up as Balor has made believers out of the WWE universe, you know, and he has has proven that he is a man of his worth. And then you can have him go on a tear like Seth did this last year as the Intercontinental Champion. And isn't it interesting that if that happens, it would set Finn nicely up for a bigger WrestleMania season next year because this is how, beyond everything else, this is how you start to build a successful generation of wrestlers. You know, it's it's cliche to say it, but it's true. History teaches us you let the guys have a barn-burning run in the mid-card with a mid-card championship. That's how the IC title became the stepping stone to the world title because that's 
then the only place that someone who succeeded with the IC title feels logically they can go. Uh, and that's what's happened with Seth this last year. If Balor can do the same, it's what happens with him the year after. And that's how you get into a situation where you've got clear roster positioning. You've got you've got meaty character arcs that have played over a series of weeks uh, and feel like the characters are three-dimensional. The Lord knows that if any character on WWE's TV needs a few more dimensions fleshing out, it's Finn Balor. You know, it's not enough for him to be the smiley, good-looking dude in the leather jacket anymore, the extraordinary man, uh, the ordinary man capable of extraordinary things. Well, use that line. Again, lean into that line because at Royal Rumble, Finn Balor, he was an ordinary man who did an ordinary thing. Because he lost, despite saying he was going to make us believe. So now is the time for him to prove that he can do the extraordinary thing by beating someone similar to Brock Lesnar, by beating someone much larger than him, by doing it on a grand stage, by doing it on a grand stage after a long chase, and by doing it to become a champion in WWE's on WWE's main roster for the first time. And following on from the the precedent and the, the, the tone set by Seth throughout 2018 with that championship, the IC title. So, you know, Balor's story arc ahead of him, like I said, I think it needs to carry on this idea of I'm going to make a believer out of you. It's got to play on that nickname of the ordinary man capable of extraordinary things by saying, look, you haven't achieved anything extraordinary yet. You know, reality era the shit out of it if you want. Pardon my French. You know, in terms of play on the fact that he hasn't really achieved anything since coming to the main roster. You know, that he hasn't achieved anything extraordinary. Uh, You know, but make this story of his, this season of his, be about making people into believers and culminate it with a big mid-card, successful mid-card championship match for him on on WrestleMania against an opponent comparable to Brock Lesnar, who was the whole kickoff to this arc in the first place. I mean, this writing writes itself. Once you start to to get a grasp on who you think these characters are, and you do that by looking at the subtext of their actions in matches, and their actions in storylines, and their actions in promos, and taking what are the coincidences of poor writing, taking what are the coincidences of uh, of short-termism, taking what are the coincidences of narrow-viewed production, incidental production, marrying them all together, that's when you get these ideas, and when you get those ideas, these narratives and these character arcs write themselves. Okay, I'm going to pause for a breath. I feel like I've been talking a million miles an hour, so I hope I've not chewed your ears off and bored you to death quite yet. I'm going to take us to a little advert break here, and when we come back, we'll pick right up with another three uh, another three characters and maybe even a division if I get time at the end of it. So here's an advert. Stick around. Okay, thanks for staying with me, guys. We're about halfway through here, and uh, I want to pick us back up. We're going to shoot back over to Monday Night Raw again. I beg your pardon, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're not going to shoot over to Monday Night Raw. We've just been at Monday Night Raw. We're going to shoot back over to SmackDown Live. And we're going to talk about Mustafa Ali, one of my current favourites, of course. As anybody who's followed my work will know, current favourite of a lot of people. Someone who's had an awesome 2018 has already kicked off 2019 in incredible fashion. Eliminated Shinsuke at the Royal Rumble, eliminated Samoa Joe at the Royal Rumble, has a pinfall victory over Daniel, Daniel Bryan, WWE Champion. And he's heading into the Elimination Chamber. Can't wait to see what he does in the Elimination Chamber, by the way, uh, in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> now, like with Finn Balor... His career has gathered a little bit of steam over the last few months and WWE would be wise to take that into WrestleMania season and keep pushing that, keep pumping, keep fueling that fire. Um, and you can do that by by continually keeping him in that upper echelon of SmackDown Live and by emphasizing the fact that, that Mustafa Ali is an almost singularly positive role model and uh, and and hero to have in the professional wrestling industry driving home a very positive social message of acceptance and tolerance at a very divisive time uh, that you know i mean it's it's first of all that's something that you want at the absolute forefront of your WrestleMania season, if you're serious about the kind of stunts that you kind of, of, of social issues that you tried to raise awareness of last year with, you know, Finn Balor coming out with the LGBTQ t-shirt and Alistair Black posting about, uh, you know, uh, depression on, on Instagram after his NXT title win and Nia Jax's storyline being about the pride of, of, uh, 
being able to rise above body shaming, all those kind of positive social messages, you know, that Ali inhabits all of that. So absolutely, I think he should be at the forefront of, of WrestleMania season this year as a result of that. Um, but also it helps that, you know, one thing that's defined as 2018 is incredible character work, whether it's been, you know, cutting promos that he's produced himself online uh, to the kind of characterization we've seen in feuds against Mustafa Ali and Buddy Murphy and, and, Cedric Alexander and how that carries through and like a lot of other people into his matches uh, and you know entering Smackdown Live picking up a win over Daniel Bryan um, having the kind of uh, introspective interactions with the fiercely intelligent fiercely capable villain Samoa Joe to kick off the year I believe all of this means that Mustafa Ali is the absolute best pick to wrestle Daniel Bryan for the WWE Championship at WrestleMania. And I know that might sound like a long shot. It sounded like a long shot to the guys on the right side of the pond when I predicted it on our first show of the year on Fridays, uh, when I said that, you know, I I actively predicted Ali would wrestle Bryan for the WWE title, and I did it for very practical reasons. I didn't see anybody else on SmackDown Live in a position to do it. But more importantly, again, we're here to talk about character arcs, and Mustafa Ali's character arc absolutely maps itself out towards a WWE Championship match against Daniel Bryan, provided Daniel Bryan remains WWE Champion that long. Because you have the contrast of their crusades. Both are pushing positive, what they believe to be, positive social messages. But they both inhabit and represent the different ways that that can be done. They both inhabit a different form of liberalism. In other words, you know, you have Daniel Bryan, who is very much the militant liberal, the screaming social media crusader, the virtue signaler, you know, the guy who's throwing hot dogs in people's faces and forcing his views on other people. So it's not even really a liberal issue. This is this is a this is an issue of outlook. This is an issue of philosophy and how you spread your message. Daniel Bryan very much the represents the extremism that has become rampant in society today. And Ali represents the moderation. Uh, that has kind of been dying off with what feels like increasing rapidity over the last few years, um, in the West at least, politically and culturally. Um, And so it's a very, you know, first of all, performance art, it's about wrestling uh, in a transcended state, being able to pass comment on important social issues and offering a lens into the social consciousness just like any other form of art can. And that's exactly what you would have in Ali versus Brian for the WWE Championship. You know, top prize in the company on the line between two social crusaders representing the extremism of society in, t- in today and the moderation in society that's getting drowned out today. Um, perfect then that the moderation the guy representing the moderation would be the underdog in such a scenario as this. But further to all of that, you also have a much more um, uh, isolated the wrong word here, but, but, you, but you have an element to that rivalry and to Ali's character arc in particular uh, that feels very, very compelling for WrestleMania season because Ali would head into this as the underdog. You know, he's he's smaller than Brian. He doesn't have Brian's experience. He doesn't have Brian's uh, accolades. You know, and certainly a, a championship match at WrestleMania. He's never even been on a main WrestleMania card. You know, so immediately all of this, you know, builds up to something of a compelling character arc for Ali, having to sort of fight from the knees up against a very dangerous in-ring competitor. Um, but wouldn't there just be a spirit of 2014 about that as well? And isn't that perfect, considering that my view of Brian's heel turn has been all about his turn into villainy, has been all about his inability to process the traumatic experience he had through forced retirement over the last two years? Like, the the very fact that Ali's journey to WrestleMania would evoke the spirit of 2014 against the man who was the spirit of 2014, and who is only in the position he's in because he has failed to adequately process the events that occurred after that fact like you know there's so much history to that and so much kind of of uh of dynamism to that kind of a story that could be told and Ali being the person to you know try and and lift the cloud of Brian's uh trauma and to try and make him see clearly again um i saw a wonderful piece of art i would love to give credit but unfortunately i can't remember you know who did it so if you do know who did it or if indeed someone listening did indeed do this piece of art then then let me know and i'll be sure to try and give you credit on another show but it was a great piece of art that 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 contrasted 
you know, it had Brian punching Ali, saying Ali didn't belong, and it con- it was a cartoon, and it contrasted that with Triple H beating Brian, saying he didn't belong, and that just would encapsulate this entire story beautifully. You know, like I said, it evokes the spirit of 2014, and what's great is, you know, because they 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 have this WWE title chamber match coming up in a couple of weeks that Ali and Brian are in, you could absolutely almost repeat the ending to the 2014 Elimination Chamber match that saw Brian come this close to winning the WWE title off of Orton only to get screwed by Orton's big hitter Kane. Well, you just flip the switch. You know, maybe bring Elliot that close to capturing the WWE Championship, which, knowing his abilities as a performer and knowing how many fans are on board with his mission and his 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 just career trajectory, people would absolutely get as almost as much on board with an Ali near title win as they did with Brian in 2014. And of course, Brian now has his own heavy hitter in Eric Rowan who can come in and cost Ali the match instead. You know, and that would set up a nice kind of, you know, prelude to to excusing the logic behind booking the, the title match at WrestleMania. And then you can start to play on the idea of Ali sort of displacing Brian as the hero on the road to WrestleMania that Brian once was in 2014 and playing on, you know, how Brian's not been able to process all of that trauma and how Ali is, you know, and all of this piled on top of, as I said, the very powerful social resonance that this storyline would have between these two characters, um, uh, given the, the representations that they both have of, like I said, you know, moderate what's the phrase I'm looking for? Moderate philosophy and extreme philosophy. Moderate philosophizing, that's the the phrase I'm looking for, and extreme philosophizing. So there's a lot going on, uh, and it would, it would just provide such a brilliant character arc for Ali, such a brilliant character arc for Brian as well, to be fair, in that kind of a situation. And most importantly would lead to an outstanding match at WrestleMania. Of that, I have no doubt. That Ali's very much earned, if you're into old-school meritocracy, as I am. Um, and that would be another signifier that WWE are very serious about, you know, creating a change of culture within the company that they've preached about when this is a week where it looks like they're immediately sliding right back to, to step one again. So, absolutely, I think Ali, another another great character arc that almost writes itself once you stumble upon the idea that maybe him versus Brian is the best bet for the WWE title come WrestleMania. Okay, let's bound back to Monday Night Raw. We'll keep this momentum going here. Let's talk about Dean Ambrose. Dean Ambrose is someone who a lot of people are expecting to have something of a dismal road to WrestleMania, and indeed they may very well be right. It could be that WWE's bad habit of deciding to burn someone right down to the ground on their way out of the company rears its ugly head again. Some have taken the uh, press announcement that WWE released about Ambrose's departure as a signal that it's a work. I personally don't feel that it is a work. I think that is just a singular example of how unique an environment we're in at the minute, but also the fact that this is probably something of an amicable and professional split, and we're used to splits with WWE being very much the opposite. So with that in mind, I think it's clear that you know the fact Ambrose was on Raw again this week demonstrated WWE are going to keep him around on television until he's gone from the company, which means we should expect him to do something at WrestleMania. Uh, But his loss to EC3 also indicated that they're not going to be, or that they don't seem to be willing to put him in in any kind of a strong position heading out the door, which, you know, you you can complain about if you want, but only makes sense. And any other wrestling company would do exactly the same. Um... You know, you could maybe argue that NJPW at least give the people leaving their company a, a, a huge match. And that leads me to the point that I want to make here. I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I loved the interaction between Dean Ambrose and Triple H on Monday Night Raw a couple of weeks ago. And I would love to see it culminate in some kind of match between them. But what I would simply do here is something that I wouldn't normally advise, which is to kind of go reality area with this one, lean into the fact you've got him doing these 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 goofy things on, on TV for a little while longer yet. Let him keep you know do do two or three more of those kind of goofy skits. Um and then and the reason I say that is because we know that's you know that's come out as one of the reasons why he might be leaving the company because he doesn't like goofy shit is the quote. But at the same time be very much aware that losing streets never necessarily work particularly in WWE but that in this case it might in this case it might because it's context dependent right we're here to talk about character arcs and the character arcs that I think make the most sense well for Dean Ambrose a losing streak is the perfect follow-up to the emotional tangent that was compiled in his feud with Seth Rollins this last year the reason being 
you've got to think about what he claimed were the motivations behind his decision to betray Seth Rollins and break the shield on the night that Roman Reigns had to go and battle leukemia. And one of them was, the, indeed the most prominent of them was, that the shield made him weak. That he was better without the shield. That the shield brought him down. That he was the best member of the shield and that he, had, he would go out and prove it, which indeed he did by beating Seth for the Intercontinental Championship at TLC. But that it was all predicated upon this belief that he would be better off on his own, better off without his brothers, better off without that brotherhood that had come to define his life. So suddenly, a losing streak goes from just a terrible idea because you've got nothing else better to do to quite an emotionally poignant end to Ambrose's arc. Bear in mind that come WrestleMania, he may be gone. And we're and I'm pre- I'm proposing this arc with the view that he will be gone after WrestleMania. Right? So WrestleMania, that's the end point for Dean Ambrose, full stop in WWE, at least for the time being. Go from, he betrays the shield that he has loved so much and been the staunchest defender of for the longest time because he believes it's made him weak because of an emotional tumult that has led him to the belief that it has dragged him down he's better off on his own. Lead that into a sudden losing streak now that he's on his own. The logical next step is for him to say, say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe everything I did was wrong. Maybe I was mistaken. You know, maybe Seth was right. Maybe I shouldn't have done what I did. Maybe this was all a horrible mistake. And I think that there was a certain tone of apology, of uh, apologeticness, of sorrowfulness and of regret in his in his promo against with Seth two weeks ago. You know, to me, that wasn't mind games. To me, that felt like someone who was on the brink of saying, I'm kind of a bit sorry, man, that I did all that. Just not quite willing to go all the way and kind of getting angry and and, and pasting over his guilt with anger. Again, lean into it, man. Give him this losing streak. Give him the motivation to question his motivation behind splintering the shield. Present someone as, uh, you know, as as the physical representation of the obstacle to get over. My suggestion would be an absentee Bray Wyatt, by the way, who is often the physical manifestations of someone's worst demons. Have him lose at WrestleMania. And what a tragic end to one of the most tragic characters in WWE that would be. It would be suitable to his to the, the tragedy of his overall arc. And it would play very much to the promise made at the end of his match with Bray Wyatt's Survivor Series 2014, particularly if he wrestled Bray Wyatt at WrestleMania, which saw Bray Wyatt sort of tempt... Dean Ambrose to hit him with a steel chair in the same way that he tempted John Cena where John Cena refused to, Dean Ambrose basically surrendered to the worst version of himself, surrendered to the physical manifestation of his demons by hitting Bray Wyatt with the chair. So this day where he would lose on his last day after having isolated himself from the only family he's ever known, suddenly you go back to that match against Bray Wyatt Survivor Series 2014, the way it ended, you go this was inevitable. This was where we were always headed. That's such a beautifully almost symphonically tragic end uh, to Ambrose's time in WWE. And then, hell, go all in with it and have his last image in WWE, for the time being at least, be a hug with Seth Rollins after Seth Rollins wins the Universal Championship in way of an apology to the person he failed before failing himself. And then his exile from WWE almost can be can be fictionalized as a self-imposed one. And you can bring him back in the company and revisit all of that. There's no reason why you cannot weave this situation with Dean Ambrose into a, a into a genuinely emotional, genuinely beautiful final story arc for him on his way out of the company. I think it would just be tremendous. Do I have confidence that WWE are able to accomplish something as, as complex as that, as mature as that? No, I don't. And I think you're probably going to see Ambrose continuing goofy television from here to WrestleMania. He'll, I think he probably will have a WrestleMania match, but he'll probably be in the Battle Royal or something. And the last we'll see of him will be some undeserving treatment that will be not maliciously intended, but just WWE being coldly practical about things. And it's a shame because I think they'll all miss out in doing so on a huge, huge, huge huge storyline for WrestleMania season that would see them relatively protected from Ambrose's departure, but give Ambrose a respectful departure that recognizes everything that he's contributed to the company thus far. Uh, And particularly if it ended with a reconciliatory hug with Rollins in the ring at the end of the night, because I do want to see Seth close the night out. I don't think he will. I don't think WWE will be able to resist the PR of saying, look, it's the first time women have closed out WrestleMania and look, it's Ronda Rousey doing it. But it, I think it should be Seth. That's just me. Anyway, 
Okay, we're almost at the go-home line. I am exhausted, but I'm getting myself quite excited. Because if... if if Give me a job, Vince, please. I'm dying to write these storylines for you, man. Um, the last person I wanted to talk about was Charlotte, actually. I already mentioned earlier how I feel like she should be in Ronda's place in that match against Becky Lynch, quite honestly. But Charlotte has, I think, a compelling story arc of her own, and it's nothing to do with Ronda and Becky. That's the important thing. There's a lot. I wouldn't be necessarily adverse to seeing her put into the Ronda-Becky match, as a lot of people, I think, would. But I think her most interesting character arc comes separately from that. And I think it's all surrounding Asuka and a rematch with Asuka, which I know is a match a lot of people says feels natural anyway, but let's talk about why it feels natural. Again, let's lean into what's been happening recently. First of all, people have wanted to boo Charlotte since Becky turned on her at SummerSlam, so give people a reason to boo Charlotte. Uh, secondly, let's talk about the fact that a lot of Charlotte's, Charlotte's performances, be it on promos in the ring with Becky during their feud, be it in the match with Ronda Rousey when she was a last-minute replacement, be it uh, her her incredible performance at the Royal Rumble in the Royal Rumble match, her inclusion in the Triple Threat TLC match. You know, again, promo work since Becky won the Royal Rumble. There's been a sense of what about me to her work, a sense of playing catch-up, a sense of seeing what's worked with Becky and rising to try and meet it. I hesitate from saying copying Becky because I don't think Charlotte is. I think she's putting it, you know, she's doing it for herself, I think she's doing it in her own way, and I think it's working, I think Charlotte's been delightful to watch actually over recent weeks, and I think that Becky raising the bar has seen Charlotte Charlotte rise to the occasion in a kind of competitive locker room sense we haven't seen in a long time, and I'm, I'm loving every second of it, but let's acknowledge that, let's acknowledge the fact that she has this sense of lingering bitterness that suddenly Becky has kind of superseded her, and taken what would have, you know, as recently as a year ago, felt like an absolute shoehorn for Charlotte. And let's use that as the character arc. You know, Charlotte should absolutely now become a fully-fledged villain. And as she watches Becky Lynch get increasingly embroiled with Ronda Rousey over on Monday Night Raw, Charlotte should look to reaffirm her position as an alpha female. She can't do it with Ronda and Becky because she lost that opportunity. But she feels she has to do it because of Ronda and Becky, both because Becky beat her in 2018, Becky beat her in the Royal Rumble, and because Ronda, the the finish to the Ronda match kick-started this whole thing, because basically Charlotte, and this is how WWE presented it on TV, wasn't certain she could beat Ronda Rousey. Suddenly, her status as the alpha female in WWE was brought into doubt. Suddenly, she was confronted with an unfamiliar situation, and mentally and emotionally and morally, she crumbled. That's why she assaulted Ronda with the kendo stick. Charlotte's feeling insecure. She's feeling like she has something to prove. And she's watching as one of her cohorts, her former friend, completely eclipses her and overtakes her. That's not going to sit easy with her. So what's she going to do? Well, she's going to operate within the confines that she can, which is on SmackDown Live. She's going to seek out the biggest alpha female she can, which is Asuka, the current champion, who just so happens to be the woman whose undefeated streak Charlotte ended last year, and she's going to seek from from a very insecure place to prove herself as the alpha female again. It's going to look pathetic, and it should look pathetic. It should look petty. It should look egotistical. It should look self-aggrandizing and self-absorbed. And it would give Charlotte motivation to really go at Asuka as well. For all of this insecurity, all of this jealousy, all of this bitterness about the situation with Becky and Ronda not involving her, just being funneled and channeled straight at Asuka, and and Charlotte looking to make an example out of Asuka to prove something about herself that she believes is an undeniable truth that the rest of the world is starting to deny. What's more is that then in turn motivates Asuka, because of course Asuka has something to prove against Charlotte, which is that the win last year at WrestleMania was a one-off, it was a fluke, it didn't mean anything, and that the downhill trend that Asuka's career has had ever since Charlotte took that undefeated streak from her last year at WrestleMania is something that Asuka's looking to, to revenge. Asuka's just been given some teeth back, she can claim she made Becky tap out, which is something Charlotte never conclusively did, uh, at least legally, in her feud with Becky. There's a lot of personal animosity that could grow 
out of Charlotte versus Asuka. But also, Charlotte would then, if she if she beats Asuka again, would be able to go around and, and get in, in Becky's face and say, look, I beat someone who's equally comparable to Becky Lynch. Uh, sorry, to, to Ronda Rousey, who was undefeated and more successful than Ronda for a much longer time. So actually, I'm still the alpha female, and you're not Becky. Um, you know, But also, if Asuka beats Charlotte, you get that nice sense of, of, a, of a redemptive arc, of a re- I, although I prefer to see a revenge arc, honestly, in this instance. Uh, unless we forget, the Charlotte Asuka match last year was phenomenal, and I maintain should have closed out WrestleMania 34. No one's ever going to convince me that Charlotte versus Asuka should not have closed out WrestleMania 34, but of course they had to hold off to give instead that honour to Ronda so that Ronda could cash in on the hard work of a whole generation of female talent. Not that I'm feeling increasingly bitter about that. <clears throat> so I think Charlotte, again, has a very clear character arc in front of her for the road to WrestleMania, and WWE just need to realise that and pounce on it and, and just be a bit more malleable and a bit more um, a bit more open to lateral thinking with their creativity and their storyline ideas. Because, again, I've not created that out of thin air. All I've done is gone, let's look at what's happened recently... Let's try and marry it all together to get a picture of what we think sh- who sh- who we think Charlotte is right now, and then let's ask, well, what would that character do at this point on the road to WrestleMania? And the rest just falls into place. You know, that's that's easy. That's what writing is, at least in my mind. Writing fiction—that's all it is. And writing pro wrestling is writing fiction. Is you have your characters. If they're three-dimensional enough, they will tell you what they would do in any given scenario, and then you just follow what feel like undeniably logical points from A to B to C to D to E to F to G. And in pro wrestling, you have the benefit of being able to pull in coincidences, the coincidences of fate, as I said at the top of the show, to really create something magical. So think about those character arcs. Think about a WrestleMania that is that leads to Seth Rollins beating Brock Lesnar for the Universal Championship on the back of the character arc that I discussed. Think about a WrestleMania that leads to Becky Lynch beating Ronda Rousey for the Raw Women's Championship on the back of the story arc I discussed. Think about a WrestleMania that sees Finn Balor beat Bobby Lashley for the Intercontinental Championship on the back of the character arc I discussed. The same with Mustafa Ali beating, maybe not beating Daniel Bryan for the WWE Championship, though how incredible would that be, but certainly getting a great match out of Daniel Bryan for the WWE Championship. Same with Dean Ambrose coming to a poignant end to his entire journey as a character from FCW right through to WrestleMania 35, including Charlotte and her journey into further into the heart of her own darkness, further into the heart of her own insecurity. Uh, you know, I think it would be an incredible WrestleMania. And you know what would top it all off? Is if we had a tag team division that got seriously rehabilitated and they could do it quite easily if they're serious about it. You just look at the example. 205 Live set this time last year when that was a product that felt in need of rehabilitation and what did they do? They brought in Drake Maverick and they used that as a means to say, okay, we're going to have a tournament and the winners of uh, the two finalists will face off at WrestleMania for the Cruiserweight Championship and the tournament was filled a single elimination knockout tournament it was filled with tremendous matches outstanding matches, that's all they need to do for the tag teams I would even go so far as to say put the women's tag team championships on one brand and put the men's tag team championships on another or alternatively unify the men's division as they seem to be treating the the women's tag division as a a united front as well so that you can have a tournament that features the revival, that features the bar, that features New Day, that features Usos, that features heavy machinery, that... God forbid features Ryder and Hawkins, but features all you know AOP if if uh, the injured AOP can can get to uh, get rehabilitated in time, and feature all the tag teams on the main roster in a single knockout elimination tournament, leading to a final at WrestleMania. Loads of great matches. That's all you need to do. So again, you've got a you've got a, a ready made road to WrestleMania for the entire tag team division there as well. If WWE just want to pounce on it, this is not. Difficult, guys. If WWE is serious about rehabilitating things, if they're serious about a culture shift, no more Jeff Jarrett matches. No more Kurt Angle matches. No more goddamn Baron Corbin inner suit promos. Just just focus on where the characters have come from. Focus on where they've been recently and focus on what logic tells you is where they would go next. And the stories will write themselves and we will have a vibrant, colourful, characterful, just beautiful WrestleMania season at a time when we as WWE fans and WWE as a company desperately need one. Phew, I am knackered. 
So on that note, I'm going to sign off, guys. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you've got any thoughts on any of the proposed character arcs that I've discussed on the show this week, then please let those thoughts be known to me. You can do so in a variety of ways. I am on Twitter, and that's by far the best place to reach me, at LOP Plan. I am on Facebook. You can look me up, Samuel Plan. You can email me, samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. You can leave me a message or a comment on lordsofpain.net on any of my podcast posts or on any of my columns which you could check out at least once every week on a Sunday and indeed go check out my January retrospective from last Sunday while you're at it and let me know your thoughts on that or I said best yet with Twitter best yet bet, better yet you can sign up to LOP forums which uh, will allow you to then reach me on there via either a direct message or any of the threads that are hanging around the forum you could catch me in the columns forum hell sign up have a go at writing a column yourself if you've ever had an opinion or two we get loads of great comments on lordsofpain.net every single week myself and all the other columnists and I'm not just saying that I genuinely mean it some of the comments we get are incredibly thought provoking very in depth half of them are columns in themselves so the likelihood is 50% of you guys that are listening to this podcast right now could easily make a great wrestling columnist go sign up to LOP forums and try your hand and listen to the feedback you get improve as a writer and maybe you'll be writing for lordsofpain.net and then who knows where the future might take you after that because of course it's only through writing lordsofpain.net that I got to publish a book 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die and while I'm plugging hell go buy a copy of 101 WWE Matches to See Before You Die on amazon.co.uk amazon.com or Amazon in whatever country it may be you're in because that's the book that will spell out cover to cover the advantages of thinking of professional wrestling as performance art so With all that said, I hope you enjoyed the show. Like I said, I will, of course, be back next week, which I believe will already be the Elimination Chamber alternative pre-show, performance art alternative pre-show. So I will see you then. And in the meantime, listen to all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio, and you guys have a great week. Bye-bye. As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, Can we not have a bit of color? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dac Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.